live from London. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Ready, steady, vote. The UK's opposition Labour Party now backing a December general election. The first bang lacks bite. Alphabet earnings disappoint investors and not satisfied. Beyond Meat posts some juicy numbers, but the stock slumps pre-market. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move coming to you live from London once again, where it seems we can go beyond meat, but we just can't get beyond Brexit. The latest on Boris Johnson's battle for a general election coming right up. But first, Wall Street Futures taking a bit of a breather, it seems, after a record-breaking session yesterday. The S&P 500 hitting a fresh all-time high. The Nasdaq also hovering right below record levels. A pause here, though, I think makes sense, though. If you think about it, the Fed begins its two-day policy meeting today. We've got a rate cut almost fully priced. The big question is, what does Jay Powell say about the future? If he signals a pause here in policy, we can expect some disappointment, I think, in stocks, particularly the Bank of Japan also meeting this week. And it could also decide to hold off on further stimulus too. We were talking about this yesterday. If a trade deal between the US and China of some sort is looking ever more likely, then perhaps it makes sense to adopt a wait-and-see strategy here. Central banks give you what you need, not necessarily what you want if you're an investor. Earnings season also remains key. Alphabet, as I mentioned, underwhelming last night. And we have fellow FANGs, Facebook and Apple tomorrow. Now, just take a look at the FANGs over the past six months. If we exclude Apple, they've been pretty much, well, defanged since the spring. Netflix, as you can see there, losing some 24%. So have the FANGs fallen out of favour or do they help create a Santa Claus rally for stocks into year end? We'll be discussing that later today. For now, though. Does Boris Johnson get his ultimate Christmas wish? Let's get to the drivers. We begin with Brexit. The UK Prime Minister's bid for a December general election has become a very likely prospect. That, after the opposition Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn said he will back one in a vote in Parliament later today. Nick Robertson joins us on this story. Nick, the vote yesterday failed. The vote today looking ever more likely, particularly if Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party are on board. Talk us through it. Yeah, the vote will be in several hours' time, waiting for the Prime Minister to take his position at the dispatch box in Parliament to essentially begin the debate. What we can look forward to uh, during that debate is partially a rerun of yesterday, but because everyone now knows that they're now in election and campaign mode, you can really expect to hear the manifestos coming out. The Prime Minister will be talking about the additional 20,000 police officers, the improvements to the National Health Service, all these sorts of things. What, what has happened that is different today to yesterday is that the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, has realised that he was essentially, and his party was the odd party out, that both the Scottish National Party and the Liberal Democratic Party had decided to side with Boris Johnson in trying for a December the election. And that would have put the Labour Party appearing to be the party that was sort of standing in the way of democracy. That was the way that the Prime Minister was casting it. He'll be campaigning this election that he is for the people and that Parliament has been standing in the way of the people. 
the things that will will emerge during the debate today will probably be a key issue about the date of the election. The government's going for the 12th of December. Don't be surprised if there's an amendment for the 11th or the 10th and that the government may go with that. Um, and there will likely be an amendment tabled by the Scottish National Party to allow uh, voters down to the age of 16 and 17 to be able to get a vote and a European Union citizens living in the UK to get a vote as well. That amendment may not be successful, however. Why does this make a difference, Nick? Because it does come back to the idea of students voting here. The date matters. Some suggestion has been made that if it's brought ahead of that 12th of December date, that will allow students still to be at university, therefore more likely to vote because they're still around and still staying where they're living at this moment. Who and why is that so important for which party? Mm. Sure. Look, it's really important to the Labour Party. Um, they believe that there would be a strong student vote for them. Uh, the the polls uh, are perhaps not clear on that at the moment, but they could be very valuable in some of those city constituencies that the Labour Party may feel could slip from their control. And if you just move the date uh, a few days forward, then the students are still on campuses where they're registered to vote, and Labour Party uh, th thinks that that's uh, an important gain for them. You know, people are talking about needing to campaign uh, where there's very little daylight, uh, that uh, some of the polling stations are perhaps not going to be available because there'll be, you know, many of them are often schools, they'll be being used for nativity plays, that you may end up having sort of polling, polling stations in caravans, lighting would be an issue, heating would be an issue, and typically turnouts, uh, you know, in the winter months are generally low. And interestingly, the last time there was a December election here was 19 23 it ended up with wow. a hung parliament and just another note for the electorate on that there was a there was an election 1922 1923 and 1924 um this may not be the last one in the next couple of years julia oh, every vote counts nick robertson thank you so much for that okay we could be about to hear the most damaging testimony yet in the trump impeachment inquiry in a stunning move an active duty military officer who currently works in the White House, will say he reported concerns about President Trump's infamous call with the Ukrainian leader. Suzanne Malvo is on Capitol Hill. Suzanne, my understanding is this is a serving army officer. He's a Purple Heart awardee. Tough to dismiss his statement today as filled with political bias. What should we expect? And Julia, he is also defying the president and the White House's order not to testify. But we do expect that this White House top expert on Ukraine will be testifying momentarily. Uh, CNN has obtained his bombshell opening statement, which suggests that he rang the alarm bells not once, but twice to his superiors, saying that he had concerns about the president's behavior, the president's inner circle behavior, saying it was inappropriate regarding Ukraine. In just hours, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman will appear on Capitol Hill and will tell impeachment investigators he was so troubled by President Trump's July 25th phone call with Ukraine's president that he reported his concerns to the National Security Council's lead attorney. And this would be uh, the first White House official um, who would actually be defying the White House's orders not to cooperate. Vindman, an Army veteran who received a Purple Heart after he was wounded in Iraq, is the first White House official to testify who listened in on the phone call at the center of the impeachment inquiry. 
Hungary, where President Trump repeatedly pressed the Ukrainian president to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden and his son. In his opening statement obtained by CNN, Vindman says he reported his concerns out of a, quote, sense of duty, adding, I'm a patriot and it is my sacred duty and honor to advance and defend our country, irrespective of party or politics. He also affirms details U.S. diplomat Bill Taylor gave in his testimony about a July 10th meeting with Ukrainian officials, contradicting testimony by U.S. Ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland. Vindman claims at that encounter, Sondland again pushed Ukraine on delivering specific investigations to secure a meeting with Trump. Vindman, who was at a briefing on the meeting, says that after this was brought up, Ambassador Bolton cut the meeting short. At that briefing afterwards, Vindman told Sunland his statements were inappropriate, that the request to investigate Biden and his son had nothing to do with national security, and that such investigations were not something the NSC was going to get involved in or push. Vindman also says the president's former top Russia advisor, Fiona Hill, also told Sunland his comments were inappropriate. They both then reported the interaction to the NSC lead counsel. But Sunland told investigators the opposite in his October 17th testimony, noting, if Ambassador Bolton, Dr. Hill, or others harbored any misgivings about the propriety of what we were doing, they never shared those misgivings with me then or later. What they were seeking was to extort the president of Ukraine in exchange for the resumption of military aid. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has scheduled the first vote on the impeachment inquiry for this Thursday, something Republicans have been demanding for weeks. This resolution uh, signals that there will be a public hearing. It signals a shift uh, where people will start to learn what is so concerning about the president's conduct. House Democrats will continue their testimony, the witnesses hearing behind closed doors this week and next week. Then they will open up those hearings to the public before Thanksgiving. And then the hope is House Democrats believe that they may bring a vote for articles of impeachment by Christmas. Julia. More understanding of the timetable here. Suzanne Malbo, thank you very much for that. All right, to Saudi now for our next driver. Wall Street's movers and shakers are gathering in Riyadh for Davos in the Desert, hosted by Saudi Arabia. Last year's event, if you remember, boycotted by many of the big names following the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. John DePerrius joins us from there now. John, what a difference a year makes. Saudi really trying here to say we're open for business and all the big investment names there and ready for action, it seems. Uh, it does seem that way, uh, Julia. Let me just give you a sense of place right now. Uh, this is prime time at the Future uh, Investment Initiative because they're waiting to hear from the King of Jordan, who's uh, a regular here in Riyadh uh, every single year. He built, followed in an hour by uh, Jared Kushner, uh, the White House advisor and the son-in-law of uh, Donald Trump. But I don't want to be too glib here. I think you could call it the banker's ball of 2019 because that's exactly what we've seen from the very first panel of the day with the CEOs of Bridgewater and Blackstone, uh, top level people from Goldman Sachs, the CEO of HSBC, and more of the same throughout the morning sessions. Uh, we have to emphasize they're paid to be here, if you will, because they have mandates either for the IPO of Aramco or the privatizations. So they have to be here. Others are still quite shocked by the death of Jamal Khashoggi, no doubt about it. So those in entertainment from Hollywood, Silicon Valley, 
their absence overall. Another strong showing from the Trump administration. Beyond Kushner, we have uh, Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, coming tomorrow. Rick Perry, the Energy Secretary, roaming the halls but keeping a lower profile, trying to sell the LNG. He's on a panel tomorrow as well. I think this is the effort to reboot Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince, with the support from the United States. But I spoke to the former White House Communications Director, Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital, and asked him, is it the right move by the United States, and can they revive the efforts here at the initiative and also the diversification plan for Saudi Arabia? Let's take a listen. I think it's a, a, a tragedy, and certainly I would denounce the event that took place as the Crown Prince did. But one of the things that I would be very cautious of as an American, I think uh, when we step back and look at historical context throughout history, I think it's very, very bad judgment, particularly as an American business person, to insert myself into the internal politics of other nations. And it's also very bad judgment to uh, be sanctimonious about it because, you know, Every nation has had its ups and downs and its calamities in its history. And there's things, unfortunately, in the United States that we all regret with historical perspective and hindsight. So, again, I'm not apologizing for it. I'm not saying that it was anything other than a tragedy. And I clearly denunciate and denounce what happened. But I'm just saying that we have to step back and look at it in, in the context of where we are today and pray for progress and pray for peace and prosperity. And in fact, Scarbucci was suggesting if you look back at the Saudi Arabia before the crown prince, uh, there were no reforms. Everything got stalled in a lot of corruption. Uh, but right now, there's still a cloud over the Saudi economy, Julia, flatlining on growth, 0.2% in 2019. And foreign direct investment is just a quarter of what it was uh, six years ago. So all the shocks over the last three or four years, uh, even linked to the three odd arrests, uh, arrests of the 400 Saudi businessmen, still having an impact, as well as Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, it's come at a price. John Defteri is uh, tracking the action there in Saudi Arabia for us. Thank you for that. All right, let's move on from A to Z. Alphabet appears to be spreading itself a little too thinly as profits missed expectations by a pretty wide margin. Google's parent company reporting a $1.5 billion hit from losses on equity investments too. It shares right now down at pre-market. Claire Sebastian joins us on this story. Operating costs rising faster than sales here. And I pointed out there, loss on equity investments like Uber and Slack, a, a bit of a double whammy here in terms of the numbers, Claire. Yeah, Julia, this was a pretty big miss, as you say, in terms of, of, of profits. They were down 23% year on year. This isn't a revenue problem for Google. Their revenue uh, topped 40 billion. That was up 20% year on year. But as you mentioned, uh, costs and expenses, they rose 25% uh, year on year. Now, that is, of course, uh, the equity investments. They only started including that in their earnings uh, about a year ago. We don't know which, but of course, they are, as you say, invested in Uber and Slack, and they have been doing uh, pretty badly since their, their IPO. So it may be to do with that. There was another legal settlement cost related to a, a case in France uh, about a, a fiscal fraud. Uh, and, 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 you know, generally looking at those expenses, one particular thing stands out is hiring. They hired six and a half thousand people in this quarter alone. They say a lot of that uh, was to do with cloud. They are very much trying to be a competitor in, in cloud to try to compete with the likes uh, of Amazon and Microsoft. So overall, Julia, the big picture here is that we have this now sprawling empire uh, of Alphabet and we're seeing bits of the business uh, are starting to kind of cannibalize other bits uh, of the business in terms of the earnings.
Yeah, but I love what you said about the hiring. That was something that leapt out at me too, that the cloud revenues look strong. And we have to remember when we're talking about Alphabet, Google, the revenue generation here is advertising and that also looks strong here. Right, absolutely. Uh, advertising is about 84% uh, of revenue overall, so this is still the giant of the business. And, and yeah, this is not a business model issue. They uh, they saw traffic acquisition costs, which is a big part of the expenses associated with that advertising business. That ticked down a little bit in the quarter. Paid clicks were up 18%. So overall, analysts are pretty bullish on this going forward. One interesting thing to note, though, Julia, uh, about Alphabet's earnings is that we don't really get a lot of clarity beyond uh, these kind of headline numbers. They don't break out YouTube uh, within the other bets, for example, which is where they do their kind of moonshot things like self-driving cars. They don't break out Waymo. And again, we don't know which of those equity investments are the ones dragging uh, down that, that $1.5 billion hit that they took. So there is something of a lack of clarity. And, and they're also facing the, the overhang from these regulatory issues, which is something that did come up on the call. Speaking of the call, and I think I probably know the answer to this question, Fitbit was soaring in the session yesterday on speculation. Google might be in for a cheeky bid here. Was that mentioned on the call and did they say anything? It's stunningly, it wasn't. <laughs> I was very much expecting uh, that it would be mentioned, but not a, not, a, not a whisper of it. And actually, Fitbit stock looks like it's coming down a little bit pre-market. Perhaps that's part of it. But we know that, that Alphabet, the parent company of Google, continues to invest in all kinds of areas, and hardware is one of them. Yes, well, we're on it anyway, even if no one else is. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. We're keeping our eyes on events in Lebanon. Prime Minister Saad Hariri is due to give a speech within the next hour. There have been almost two weeks of protests over the country's ongoing economic crisis. We will bring you the very latest as it happens. Over to California now. Hundreds of thousands of people are fleeing as massive wildfires burn across the state. This is a look at what people are facing out there at this moment. This fire broke out in Los Angeles near a high-profile area where many celebrities live. Many of them are leaving while they can. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. It's still to come. Investors look beyond profit as Beyond Meat Stock takes a hammering despite strong results. And a first quarter of profits... And the Boeing CEO appearing on Capitol Hill to talk about the efforts to bring the 737 MAX jets back to the skies. All that to come. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move, where we're in the pause before power period as far as markets are concerned. I think U.S. futures pretty flattish at this stage. The Fed beginning its two-day policy meeting. It is expected to cut rates again tomorrow, the third time this year. Stocks began the trading week, though, in fine style. Yesterday, the Nasdaq, in fact, the big gainer, rising over 1%. But it was the S&P 500 that stole the spotlight, closing at a fresh all-time high. The Nasdaq actually very close to record territory too. We'll point that out if we get it. Earnings though continue to come in from the blue chip heavyweights. Drug giants Pfizer and Merck posting solid results pre-market. Both firms raising full year guidance too. And the stock set to rise 
when the session begins. As you can see, that's the trading pre-market. Let's talk through what we're seeing here in terms of earnings season. Joining me now, Samir Samano, is a global equity and technical strategist at the Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Samir, great to have you on the show with us. We're approaching the halfway point in earnings season for the third quarter. Your main observation at this stage is the cautiousness around the outlook here. It makes sense, surely, given the degree of uncertainty out there. Yeah, absolutely. We totally agree. And one additional thing to point out is that the revisions um, to a lot of the estimates were very heavily lowered before the earnings season started. So it's not surprising to see that, you know, north of 80 percent of companies are beating those estimates. And then you mentioned, you know, the guidance is clearly what the, the most important piece of it all is. And unfortunately, there are enough uncertainties out there that companies are still probably being a little bit cautious. And, you know, if at some point the, the trade issue were to re-escalate, um, that's probably not in numbers right now. So all is well for for this earnings season, but guidance is pretty tepid. Yeah, I mean, you've pointed out and we've seen it, technology, materials, energy, so far this earnings season have been some of the underperformers, but I, I know you like tech. Explain why. A lot of it has to do with just the secular trends that tech sits in the middle of. I mean, they are driving, you know, the, the boat from the standpoint of the way consumers are consuming. Um, businesses continue to spend on technology in terms of streamlining their operations. Um, things like Internet of Things, autonomous cars. Uh, a lot of those kind of feed back into whether it's the semiconductor companies or the software companies. So if you, we feel like, you know, every once in a while there probably will be a quarter that maybe just is a little bit disappointing. But those secular growth trends are very much intact. I mean, these are long, medium to long term stories that you're talking about. So you have to isolate one quarter, perhaps, and say, look, fine, as actually the Alphabet CFO did on the earnings call last night. Look, we're not focusing on quarter by quarter. This is the medium to long term game here. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, Google grew revenues at 20%. I mean, just the fact that a company that size is growing the top line at 20%, um, you know, gives them a lot of flexibility in terms of, again, how much of that flows through into the earnings side. Now, again, you know, expenditures are ticking up for, for a company like that, and they are in technology more generally. But just the fact that you've got a company that large growing that quickly gives them a lot of room to maneuver. You also say you're neutral on U.S. large caps, on mid caps and international markets. Now, if I look at the performance of some of the big international markets over the last three months, compared even to the S&P 500, admittedly, their base is lower than what we've seen in the United States, but they've dramatically outperformed. Talk to me about your views on international markets here. And do you not expect the outperformance that we've seen for the last three months to continue? We don't. A lot of that was driven by the dollar, which probably had gotten a little bit extended. We've been calling for weakness in the dollar for some time, and we finally got it. And, you know, on the international markets, they tend to benefit from that. But unfortunately now, the dollar's probably close to the lower end of its trading range. So some of that, you know, tailwind that the international markets have experienced is probably gone. You're also starting to get to a point where you've probably gotten to, a, you know, a place where you've discounted the, uh, the detente on trade. And the hard Brexit being taken off the table probably also is discounted in European equities. So now the problem is you're back to a lack of catalysts on the international side, whereas at least on the U.S. side, um, there's still pretty good growth. So if we're talking about a lot of the good news actually being in the price, the benefits, the relative benefits of the dollar playing out for international markets, is that also a reason to be underweight small cap stocks then here in the United States too, perhaps? 
It is. And, you know, other things that also act against small caps is at this point in the cycle, as growth is decelerating, economic growth is decelerating, profit growth is decelerating. Unfortunately, we haven't really seen expectations come down for small caps either, which is a little bit distressing. Um, So we feel like large caps are are kind of the place to be on a relative basis. So we're unfavorable on smalls. We are neutral on large caps. um, And we're tilting into some of those sectors where we feel like they can access those pockets of growth like tech, discretionary and financials. Got it. Samir, fantastic to have you on the show. Samir Samana there, Global Mm -hmm. Equity and Technical Strategist at the Wells Fargo Investment Institute. We're counting down to the market open for the second session this week. Stay with us. More to come. You're watching First News. Welcome back to First Move. That was the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Crowd Castle there ringing at the opening bell. They can't create a bit of a lift for the markets here with those cheers. They're mostly flat open for U.S. stocks as we expected. The S&P easing back, as you can see, from record highs hit in the session yesterday. That said, the Nasdaq and the S&P have both risen for four days straight. The Nasdaq also sitting just below record levels, too. In the meantime... Let's take a look at the uh, 10-year Treasury yield for the United States, too. A little bit softer here, but we did see that yield hit six-week highs in yesterday's session, too. 10-year yields hitting four-month highs today in Japan as well. Australian bond yields also rose sharply, raising uh, fresh questions. We've been asking this on the show now for a couple of weeks. Have global bond yields hit bottom? Because even on bad news days, we do see yields rise. It's an interesting one to watch. But now let's bring it back to our global stock movers. Alphabet shares, as you can see, trading lower. Profits missing estimates. They fell some 23% below last year's levels. Rising costs hurting the bottom line. But revenues did come in at some $40.5 billion, a little bit higher than expected. And actually, despite the performance pre-market, losing just shy of 1% here, so a lot less than it might have been. GM shares also in focus higher by some 3.6%. The auto giant easily beating Q3 estimates, but earnings fell below last year's levels. GM also lowering its guidance for 2019 due to the just-concluded UAW strike. Right now, up some 4% in the session. Food delivery firm Grubhub, wowzers, losing just shy of 34%. The company definitely not delivering in Q3. Revenues were light and its Q4 guidance came in well below estimates due to increased competition from Uber, DoorDash and other delivery firms. What about Beyond Meat? Well, those shares also tumbling right now down just shy of 24%. The knives are out for the company, steak knives perhaps, despite the fact that it posted its first ever quarterly profit. Beyond Meat also raising its full year guidance. To tell us what's cooking, (laughs) Ernest Stewart, a rare opportunity. Wait for all the puns here for us to be in the studio together. (laughs) But actually, it was a lot of good news. I mean, first quarterly profits, bumper rise in revenues. What's the problem here? They also upgraded the sales outlook. And the call was all about these exciting new partnerships with the likes of McDonald's, talking about expanding abroad. There was a lot of good news in this report. But let's face it. 
The share price today is not reacting on that. I don't think it's to do with the uh, the expiry of the lockup. And also, we've seen a repositioning from short sellers in recent weeks already, all gearing up towards this. The fact of the matter is, this was uh, an IPO at $25 a share. Right. It rocketed 300%. And you'll look at it today, it's still quadruple where it started. And you've got to question the fundamentals behind the company. And this is a great point. A lot of good news in this earnings report. A lot of good news already in the price when you're talking about that kind of rise post-IPO. Talk to me about that then. What about the competition here if we're talking about the fundamentals? Because many of the analysts that look at this say, we love the story, we love the company, but there's a lot of good news in the price here. It's are you trading on the sentiment or on the fundamentals? Because right. the sentiment is great. This is a fantastic trend. We see it in every supermarket, in every restaurant. Frankly, every dinner party you have, you have another vegan at the table. This is something you can invest in. You want to cash in on it. However, the barrier to entry is very, very low. So while they've got, you know, first takers rights, they've got some fantastic partnerships. There are lots of rivals, impossible meat in the US. You've got uh, the vendor here in Europe. You also have Kellogg's, Nestle, all the big food manufacturers that have the resources and the big spend to go in on this. And frankly, what about white label products, white label factories? They could start getting on this too. How long can Beyond Meat retain the fact that it was first in there and it's got the brand? How long will McDonald's want to put Beyond Meat on their burgers? That's the big question. And isn't the future all about hemp seeds, mung beans and crickets apparently too? Never mind pea protein. It's going to be ground crickets. Apparently it's great protein, Julia. I look forward to sharing a ground cricket burger with you soon. (laughs) Yeah, you might have to uh, catch me first. (laughs) Well done, Anna Stewart. (laughs) See, well done. Yeah, rare. Anyway, moving on quick. We're also keeping an eye on Boeing stock today. Thank you for that. The firm's CEO, Dennis Muhlenberg, will testify in the U.S. Senate in the next half an hour. He's set to admit mistakes Boeing made over its 737 MAX aircraft and talk about the efforts the company's making to make it safe to fly again exactly a year after the Lion Air Flight 610 crash. Jim Corridor is the Director of Industrials Equity Research at CFRA Research. Jim, great to have you on the show. What do you want to hear from Dallas Muhlenberg today? Contrition is what some are saying. It's not enough to say, look, mistakes were made. We're learning from them. Actually, they want to hear him say once again, the company's sorry. Yeah, and he is going to say he's sorry over and over and over again. I've read through his prepared remarks. The most important things are actually facts about the changes to the software system that are going to make the plane safer. But over and over in his comments, he is talking about how much regret and how sorry the company is and the changes that they've made to their safety culture to make the company better. But I'm guaranteeing that's not going to be enough for congressmen. They're going to look to take them to the woodshed. They're going to look to blame, assign blame and, and you know, vent the, public's anger out on him. He's already left the the chairman role behind and that's now been separated. Do you think he's lucky to remain the CEO? Because I'm sure he's going to get asked and it's from both sides of the aisle here why he should remain the CEO of the company. Yeah, I believe his job is hanging on a thread. The plane needs to come back into service soon. It needs to come back into service safely. And the company needs to be able to convince all its constituents, airline customers, the flying public, investors, that it is safe. If this doesn't come about, he won't have his job for much longer. You know, it's interesting. I spoke to the Emirates CEO last week, and he said to me, he predicts it will be back up in the air, that the Max Jets, in the first half 
of 2020. And he was one of the first to say, look, it's not happening in 2019. And he said to me, he was booed in a room when he made that comment. What do you think? First half of 2020? Yeah. I mean, that feels like a worst case scenario for Boeing here. Yeah, that, that does. I, I would expect the plane to be flying in the first quarter of 2020 uh, at the latest, I, uh, at least in the U.S. I think the FAA is going to recertify the plane once the, the certification flight comes up. The company has made substantial changes to the plane that has made it much safer. They have made it so that the sensors have to agree with each other instead of one sensor being able to take down the plane. They made it so that if the pilot turns off the MCAS system, that it stays off unless the pilot reactivates it. So the situation of events that happened cannot happen again under the new software system. The plane's going to be safer and it will start flying again early next year, I think. And you think people will trust it? Consumers will trust it? Yeah, I mean, the, Muhlenberg himself has flown two flights on the plane. There's been hundreds of hours of flights flown. There's been thousands of hours of simulator flights flown. FAA will come on board eventually. Global regulators will eventually approve the plane. There's gonna, It's going to be the most scrutinized plane in the history of aviation once it is recertified. And there will be, of course, a PR uh, kick to make the, the flying public believe that the plane is safe. And it will be. Representative Peter DeFazio, who's the chair of the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure, said this all starts on Wall Street. Investors pressured Boeing to quickly build its fuel-efficient 737 MAX planes to top European rival Airbus. What do you make of that? Investor pressure here to do what they did? I disagree wholeheartedly. I believe investors will always pressure firms to raise profits and revenues faster and faster. It's an executive's job to combat that pressure, look out for the long-term health of a firm, and not think on a quarterly basis. This is why they make the millions of dollars a year. They are in the position to fight back against investor and analyst pressure. Of course, we're always going to be looking for more and more and more. We, we expect uh, the company to do better every year, but it's the CEO's job to make sure that that plane is safe. Would you agree that the only reason why there's perhaps value in this stock, and I know you're long this stock, Jim, and you've said this to us since the beginning, actually, that there's no alternative? Because the Emirates CEO sort of admitted that to me. There's no alternative. Airbus, unfortunately, has a huge backlog too. So if you're looking for alternatives here, you're stuck. You have to stick with Boeing. That saved Boeing here. It is definitely true that there is only two aircraft manufacturers. Boeing is, is obviously half the share and Airbus is the other half. There's no alternative. But also, they make great planes. They make safe planes. Uh, Boeing is going to say in his comments today that there will be 5 million people flown today safely every single day uh, without incident. Of course, these accidents were horrible and the company has made changes to fix it. They are a well-run company that makes very good products, which is why they are the number one plane maker in the world. But yes, customers have nowhere else to go. Aerospace demand is going to continue and Boeing is going to continue to sell planes. <laughs> a good reminder. Jim, great to have you with us. Jim Corridor of CFRA Thank Research. you, Julia. Thank you for that. Up next, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn just took us one step closer to a Brexit election. Brexit-related general election. We'll bring you the latest from London. Stay with us. November. Welcome back to First Move. It could be fourth time lucky for the UK Prime Minister. Boris Johnson looks set to get the election he's been pushing for after the opposition Labour Party said it will back his proposal in Parliament. But my next guest says the vote we need is not a general election, but another Brexit referendum. Hugo Dixon, Deputy Chair of the People's Vote campaign, joins us now. Hugo, an election is coming, irrespective. Talk me through your views here. 
Look, this will be the election of our lifetimes, um, certainly of my lifetime, and it is going to determine the country's future and indeed Europe's future for decades to come. Because if Boris Johnson wins the election, then we'll have Brexit on the terms of his miserable deal that he negotiated with the EU a few weeks ago. If, though, Johnson loses, then we will have a new Brexit referendum and the people will be able to decide whether they would prefer to stay in the EU or not. And all of the opinion polls, I think apart from one, I think it's like 73 out of 74 opinion polls this year show that the British people actually would prefer to stay in the EU than leave. So this is what's at stake is do we get that referendum if Boris loses or do we just leave on his terrible sellout deal if he wins. So you're saying tactically voting here, whether you decide to vote for the Liberal Democrats or the Labour Party, whoever you vote for, all ends lead to the same conclusion, which is a referendum and a decision on some kind of deal versus remaining. Well, all, all roads lead to a referendum provided Boris Johnson doesn't win. If Johnson wins, we don't get a referendum. That's why um, what we will be arguing for in this election campaign is vote for the candidate with the best chance of defeating the Conservative in that particular constituency, that particular region of the United Kingdom. So in some places, it will be most sensible to vote for the Liberal Democrats. In some places, it will be most sensible to vote for Labour. In others, perhaps the Greens or the SNP in Scotland or Plaid Cymru in Wales. It will vary around the country. But the key thing is make sure Johnson doesn't win a, 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 a majority, because if he wins a majority, we are leaving the EU on a terrible deal. What it does is it turns Northern Ireland into a colony of the EU and it makes the rest of the UK, Great Britain, which is 98 percent of the population, far poorer than it otherwise would be, as well as damaging our power on the world stage. We're so learning, it's a terrible, terrible, terrible deal that Johnson has done. We're learning to be sceptical about polls at this stage, but it does look like Boris Johnson could get a majority here. Hmm. He could. He could. He is, he is the favourite. Going into this election, he is the favourite. So we are the underdogs. We are going to have to fight like mad. But we've got good arguments, not only... Is it the case that his deal is really, really bad? But there are the positive arguments for being in the EU. The most important ones are that we will be more able to fix the key problems at home if we're not obsessing about Brexit until the cows come home. We'll continue to obsess about Brexit. Hugo, I want to stop you there because I believe Jacob Rees-Mogg is speaking in Parliament at this moment. We're just going to listen in to mm. what he's saying before dissolution to ensure the Northern Ireland Civil Service can access the funding it needs to deliver public services and proper governance. The situation facing a number of Northern Ireland departments has become critical and the bill is needed to allow the Northern Ireland Civil Service to continue to access the cash needed to deliver public services. In order to ensure that that bill receives royal assent to allow for dissolution on the 6th of November, and to allow the 25 working days for the administration of the poll, it needs to proceed quickly. We have therefore proposed in the business motion that all common stages of the bill happen today. The bill that is before the House is only two clauses long, so is a very short bill. 
It is also a simple bill in that it seeks only to set the polling day as the 12th of December. The House should not, therefore, be disadvantaged by considering all stages of the bill in one day. Turning to the Honourable Member for Walthamstow's amendment, the Government's business motion provides for an efficient timetable for the consideration of this bill, which is a straightforward piece of legislation for an election on the 12th of December. Of course the Government recognises that the selection of amendments is a matter for the Speaker or the Chairman of Ways and Means. However, it is entirely standard practice for this House for amendments not to be taken from backbench MPs on bills as simple as this one, where an expedited timetable is required. While it may not be a wrecking amendment in itself, there is no doubt that it is a gateway to amendments that could seek to obstruct the bill. The bill is simply designed to give effect to give effect to what all four, all four of the biggest parties in this House have now said they support. That is a December general election. Nothing more and nothing less. We will have over six weeks. I will of course give way to the Honourable Lady. I'm most grateful to the Leader of the House, who once upon a time was a champion of this House, but since he became Leader, seems to be trying to curtail debate on every government bill. I know he's had a long-running, if polite, dispute with the Speaker, but could he explain to us paragraph 3b and why he felt it was necessary to say the Speaker shall leave the chair whether or not notice of an instruction has been given. The Speaker is never in the chair when we're in committee stage. Why does the Leader of the House feel it's necessary to say that this afternoon? Uh, Mr Speaker, the Honourable Lady and I served on the Procedure Committee together. And the Honourable Lady must be aware that that is completely standard whenever the Speaker leaves the chair to go into committee. It has been standard for decades, if not for centuries. There is nothing unusual in that. And if anyone thinks, Mr Speaker, that in any way it is a dig at you, they simply don't understand the procedures of this House. And I notice the Speaker is indicating uh, that he is in assent with what I'm saying. So I frankly surprised the Honourable Lady, who is a distinguished member of the Procedure Committee, isn't aware of that basic procedure. Um, so it is just a December general election, nothing more and nothing less. There will be six weeks to discuss all of the great political questions facing our question, facing our country, before the people are given the chance to give their verdict. But the debate today is not about those great issues. It is simply about setting the 12th of December as the date for general election. We'll leave the uh, Leader of the House of Commons there, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Hugo Dixon still with me. Hugo, I've lost count of the number of Remainer voters in the referendum in 2016 that are so sick of Brexit, they're saying, we just want to leave now to get it out of the way. So 30 seconds. The argument for the UK remaining in the EU from your perspective. Okay, it's first of all, we're more likely to fix the problems at home if we're not obsessing about Brexit and we have a more healthy economy that can afford to pay for things. And secondly, we will be more able to help fix the global problems, things like the climate crisis, if we are working with 27 other like-minded nations rather than flying solo. That's it. Well, you gave me only 30 seconds. How many did I use? <laughs> but the UK, the UK will be OK either way. Can we make that... Can we make that argument to you? The Brits are resilient. They will get on with it, whatever the result Look, we're, we're, we're going to survive. The question is not whether we survive. The question is whether we thrive. And it's also whether our region of the world, whether Europe thrives. And Britain 
plays a really important role in Europe. And it would be a tragedy not just for Britain, but also Europe, and I would say the world, if we leave the EU. So that's why we're fighting. That's why we're fighting every inch of the way. And that's why, although we are the underdogs going into this election, I think we've got a bloody good chance. <gasps> there we go. Very British there. I'll apologise to anyone who thinks that's a swear word. <laughs> Hugo, <laughs> Hugo Dixon, Deputy Chair of the People's Vote Campaign. Thank you for that. All right, you're watching First Move. We'll be right back. Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's boardroom brief. U.S. regulators are planning to further restrict the operations of Chinese telecoms firm Huawei and ZTE. The federal regulators will vote next month on a proposal to bar companies that receive government money from doing business with the two firms. We will learn more about the next contender in the streaming wars later when Warner Media hosts an event headlining HBO Max. The service was a keystone in AT&T's $85 billion deal for Time Warner, CNN's parent company. AT&T says it intends to spend around $2 billion on the project over the next two years. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You can listen to our podcast on cnn.com slash podcast. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.